you're a biblical scholar. I, I, I'm not stating anything you don't already know, but the scriptures themselves um, show how people over a long period of time evolved in their understanding of God, how God works in the world, and how God desires for us as, you know, what God desires for us as human beings. But that is a, a very uncomfortable thought for a lot of people. Um, yeah. Why do you think that is? to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. This is worth putting off the podcast interview for 30 more seconds to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Peter Enns. Pete is a biblical scholar, theologian, and writer. He has authored numerous best-selling books, including How the Bible Actually Works, The Bible Tells Me So, The Evolution of Adam, and The Sin of Certainty. He's a professor of biblical studies at Eastern University and the co-host of the Bible for Normal People podcast. Pete, thank you for rejoining the conversation. Thanks, man. You forgot to say, and he's a great guy. <laughs> well, I should have also <laughs> said, and he's a Yankees fan. So yeah. take that okay. or leave that as as it as it were. Because you know, when we we actually had a conversation a couple of weeks ago in person. Yeah. Uh, we, we went a great length about this, and I was boasting about how amazing the Mets season was going to be. And here we are in uh, the end of May, and they're sitting right at 500. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, the Yankees have had a resurgence lately, but um, they, they, they keep getting injured. And I don't know what's happening there. But, you know, hey, it all washes out. We're good. And I think, uh, you know, we shouldn't get tribalistic right away with these <laughs> baseball things. We need to just... We need to get, set a good tone here, I think, for your audience. 
All right. So the last not, not get into a fight right away. My my parting piece would be with Yankee <laughs> players getting hurt, they'll just buy new ones like they always do. So well, the thing is, yeah, obviously. <laughs> However, the problem is that the, there are no good ones out there to buy. Yes. So, they're or they're horrible, way too so. way, <laughs> way too expensive. They bought so, the guys, but they're hurt. <laughs> you don't 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 wind me up here andy this is not a good way to start the morning this is eight in the morning here so right, not, not enough coffee in the day so when we last spoke 2018 uh the world felt like a a different place than it yeah. did back then um you've been kind of you know progressing along with with, with everything what, what's really as you look back kind of uh not really since we've spoken 2018 but really looking back at where we are you know, in this pandemic, what's changed for you along the way as you, as you really reflect on it? Oh, gosh. I mean, in a way, a lot. You know, um, it's hard to unsee the habits that we developed, you know, in isolation. And I have to say, I didn't mind the isolation too much because I'm an introvert and I like recharging. I was so happy I could just wear shorts and a t-shirt all the time. And I think it was months, months before I wore pants with a zipper. Very proud of that, by the way. So, <laughs> um, but you know, it was uh, changed a lot. A lot. It's it's almost like it's so subtle the changes for me. Just how I go about doing daily tasks. You know, I I I I, I grocery shop differently. It's sort of weird, you know. I get different things. I'm, um, I still think of. I, I don't know if anybody else had this experience, but when you get produce and you have those stupid little plastic bags that you can't open without licking your fingers, and during COVID, I didn't. So it took me about a half an hour each time I got a banana to just open the <laughs> stupid bag because you can't. They're, they're just made to not open, right? <laughs> And I don't even know what end to open, so I had to figure that out. But anyway, so I still think that way when I go into the grocery store, you know, and I have to really focus to sort of get – it's a small thing, but it's to me, it's somewhat symbolic. I still have to be conscious about we're not in a pandemic anymore. I can go back to certain habits. But, um, I mean, for me, the biggest habit, and I don't mind saying this, uh, has been – you know, I didn't really go to church during for about a year and a half. And uh, partly I, I just, I can't do Zoom church. That doesn't grab me. Um, I have to be in the space. But, you know, I got into a habit of surviving and quite well, I would say, without a weekly church obligation. And it had nothing to do with the church itself. It just had to do with me. And it gave me a chance at really to reflect on what church means to me. Um, you know, for in case anybody's wondering, I've been back in church uh, full time since the fall, late fall, and uh, Episcopal church that I go to. So I, I love the people and I love being there, but being away helped me reevaluate just what I think about church and, and why I go. I remember uh, probably this was May of 21. And things, as I recall, things were opening up a little bit at that point. And I remember getting up one morning and had not having been to church more than once in the past year or something, saying, I really should go to church. I should go to church. I started amping myself about should, 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 should. 
And then I just stopped myself because you know, I've been thinking about this stuff for a year at that point. And I just stopped myself and I said, is that what this is about? I should go or what? What will happen to me if I don't go to church this morning? Will God be angry with me? Will God turn his back on me? All this kind of stuff. I mean, all those inner voices in my head. And I I think COVID gave me a chance to rethink some of those voices that just pop up automatically. And so what I did was I made myself um, a fruit smoothie and I sat outside and I read uh, Barbara Brown Taylor and uh, Thomas Keating, who is a was a Catholic contemplative writer. And I just spent two, three hours reading them um, outside by a tree. And I felt connected with God that way. And, you know, I might not have done that as readily a years before, you know? Um, so that's, that's just, I was able to be who I was pretty much is what I'm saying. And I think COVID made me think about that more deeply than, you know, the regular hustle and bustle when you're sort of on autopilot. Of, a, of all the deep and profound things that you were just kind of divulging, I want to go back to the plastic bags here for just a second. Um, <laughs> we, we were in Oregon and Washington for my uh, doctoral graduation. Uh, and of course, those states, you have to buy bags uh, at the store, like no normal plastic bags. So if you're ever traveling that way, I will shamelessly say that I just went to the grocery section, which they still allow you to use those bags in the kind of produce section mm. and just took a couple extras. And, you know, that was our grocery bags because, oh. um, you know, I don't have to pay the 10 cents for the plastic bag. So you resorted but... to theft. I see. <laughs> no, no, it's not theft. Good for you. Praise God. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> hey, we all have to survive during COVID. You know, we all have to survive somehow. And and basically, moralities is just off the table. There's got to do it's survival mode. It's like you know the lizard instinct, whatever people call it, the lizard brain. <laughs> you know, you got to survive. I hear you. But, well, you know, it's. Uh... I know it's it's somewhat, you know, for, for folks that we've had on the podcast before, but haven't had on since maybe during the beginning of the pandemic or midway through the pandemic. I, I always enjoy asking that question because everybody has just such a unique perspective mm -hmm. into what's changed for them and the different types of professions we have on here. Um, you know, the other piece is uh, your, your podcast, Jared Bias, uh, um, has, has really taken off and, and you've all launched this new book series uh, examining different books. Mm -hmm. um of the bible um shameless plug for our dear friend josh james uh, who's yeah. written one on psalms for normal right. people uh, yeah, that came in people. april tell us a little bit about the series and, and its goal yeah well we uh jared and i we started thinking about this a, a few years ago actually the first book in that series called genesis for normal people uh came out in 2012 and i think we reissued it a few years later under our own banner so to speak, but we, we're in the business now of actually uh, publishing some books and uh, we have, you know, a series Bible for normal people, obviously. And, you know, we've got a bunch of those books out and, and several more contracted, but we're also branching out to have books, not just on see books of the Bible, not commentaries, but on themes or ideas or pieces of theology. So we're going to have like atonement for normal people, you know, understanding atonement theories and things like that. 
um, and and various other you know science and religion for normal people. I mean, how do you navigate these things? So we're moving into also theological topics, which we're really excited about. So yeah, you know, we're just doing that because um, you know we we want to give resources to people for you know provide re we're not giving them we're selling them but provide resources for people uh who are thinking through you know perennial issues that are challenging and difficult but also unavoidable to think through and so that's that's been a lot of fun and we're we're doing that we actually have um someone now uh who I probably won't mention i don't know if she wants her name mentioned so i won't but her name is lauren but uh she <laughs> she's um our uh book you know basically in charge of the entire book line and uh we're going to be seeing you know maybe two three books coming out every year for the foreseeable future so that's gonna that's a lot of fun so you have a new book curveball this book examines how our concept of faith and god takes unexpected turns you wrote as for me my inherited beliefs eventually ran out of steam and collapsed on themselves they could no longer explain my day-to-day -day experience and rather always seemed to be at odds with them this led to a dark and difficult period in my life of not knowing what to believe if anything i wonder if you'll Take us into that that personal aspect kind of behind this book. Walk us through that period of, of darkness and difficulty and, and what you were experiencing. Yeah, I, mean, I was fairly young. You know, that's, uh, I begin the book with an experience of my, you know, loving baseball and playing baseball my whole life and then wanting to continue that uh, professionally after college. And uh, long story short, I... I generated some professional interest, but I blew up my elbow a week after my college season ended. This is back in 82. And um, that was a big blow for me. It took me a couple of years to really work through that uh, because this is all I ever wanted to do. And the thing is that I had prayed hard enough that I should have gotten it. I mean, how much more do you have to pray than I did? Or, or you know, just believe it kind of thing. And that, that was partly the church influences that I had at the time, good churches, but um, very much like if you, if you pray hard enough, you have, and you lead the right kind of life, then good things will happen to you. God's going to take care of you, a very transactional view of God, which of course is, you know, you see this in the Bible as well, but it's not one that um, I hold to any longer. And that a lot of that began during that time where things were very dark and hopeless, not just because I blew up my elbow pitching, but because of my views of God that I had that weren't being supported by this experience that I had. And like I said, it took me a couple of years to get past that, not to pass it, but to work through it and to learn from it and to see God as more, you know, stop me if you've heard this one, but, you know, participating in our struggles or our sufferings or being acquainted with them, knowing them rather than the sort of the sovereign button pusher who can work everything out for you if you just say the right words. So that was, that dark period was for me, you know, and I don't, you know, minimize other people's dark periods, but for me, this dark period was absolutely necessary for me to see 
you know, a refrain I have in the book is a bigger God or a better God than the one I had conceived of in my childhood and then late teenage years and early 20s. I want to go back to a term you used in that, that opening quote that I read, uh, inherited beliefs. Uh, it's a fascinating term. What do you mean by that? Um, it, it means, you know, the, the faith that some, some of us grew up with, views of God that we inherited from parents or church. And this can happen later in life, too. I mean, some people come to faith in their 20s, and they go to a church, and that's how they learn the faith. And that's sort of an inherited faith, too. It's something that's delivered to you that you sort of have. It's sort of like the color of your eyes, you know, or the color of your hair or your physique or, you know, whether you tend to gain weight or whatever. These you've inherited these things. Uh, and without really having a lot of interactive say in it, really. You know, so, and that's what usually, ha I think it usually happens when you're younger, when you're not thinking about being self-critical and things like that. So that's what I mean by that. It's, it's what we have. It's the faith that was delivered to us that sort of is part of our faith journey, which is the very thing that winds up getting challenged by the ex experiences we have, which can be huge or just everyday things. But somewhere the inherited faith will fall short it won't address what you need addressed and partly i think not to go on and on about this but partly it's you know if that inherited faith is highly biblicistic which means the bible holds the answers you read the right verse and you've got the answer for life's problems that's particularly a place where people can uh be fouled up a bit because the, the Bible doesn't address many of the things that we face every day. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of where that's coming from, this notion of an inherited faith. An inherited faith is, can be a very good thing, but eventually it gives way to making that faith your own, which, in my opinion, only, help, only happens with some sort of struggle or challenge. Our audience, uh, clergy probably are familiar with like Fowler's stages of faith um, yeah. and really kind of tra that transition from stage three to stage four and why a lot of people revert back to stage three just because it's so difficult to remove ourselves from something we've inherited and to, to make it our own, but also to kind of mature it, if you will. You know, so I wonder... As you as you reflect on kind of, I mean, you've written a book about faith being changed and altered through life circumstances. Just just how much of our understanding of God is an inherited system, and, and to what extent is that healthy and unhealthy? Yeah, I I think <clears throat> in a way, all of our faith is inherited in a certain way, and it can't be avoided because you know, we're social creatures. So faith usually is in the context of some sort of a social network or context. And it's, it's, it's hard to just, you don't do faith on your own. I, I mean, I'm, I've never met anybody who is a person of faith by being isolated from a community. I, I don't think that's really possible. I don't think it's practical. And so it's inevitable, and I think it's fine, you know, to have an inherited faith. If that's what we all have, to have an inherited faith is fine. 
it's only when we absolutize that faith, that version of it, and say, nothing else can ever be right, I can never change, that's when it becomes detrimental. It's not having an inherited faith, it's saying that inherited faith can't be transcended when in fact I think it has to be transcended or else we don't make it our own. You know, it's sort of like, you know, if, um, maybe this is a horrible example, but if you've inherited, let's say a temper, which some people have, you know, it's just, you come out like this, it's intergenerational trauma, it's baked into your DNA. But if you, if you sort of come out of the womb like that, um, that's an inherited faith. That's the way it is. And that's you, and and you learn what that means, but that doesn't mean you can't transcend that in your life too. You can't you can't critique that, right? It doesn't mean you can't critique that and say, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to have a problem like this, or you know, alcoholism. You know that which is you know from what I understand an inherited issue, um, that maybe even has genetic factors in it. I don't really quite understand it, but you know, for people then to say, okay, I was, you know, there's a long history of alcoholism in my family and I'm feeling that too, but I, I want to do something about it. I want to transcend that. At that point, you know, it's not a good or bad thing that this is part of an inherited faith. What's good is the willingness to, to not hold on to that way of being and say, I will never change. This is who I am. You know, but within an inherited faith, sometimes you are encouraged to stay put and to not change and to not listen to your experiences or your intuitions and to, uh, you know, have your faith be about circling the wagons, more or less. And that to me, that that's what Curveball is about a lot is, no, you have to listen to your experiences. You have to actually pay attention to your intuitions. They may be sacred moments where you're seeing the inherited faith it doesn't address things that you are experiencing. So what are you going to do now? Deny your experience? Or are you going to say, hey, listen, uh, I know I was raised a certain way to think about things in such a way or to find Bible verses or whatever, but you know, there's things that happen that break down that system and expose it for how limited it is and how it doesn't capture God fully. And, and none of our thinking captures God fully, in my opinion. Obviously, the book is is titled Curveball. Was there a particular curveball you can point to, or was it a series of curveballs over time that led you to this place of of reconsidering the the framing of God you inherited? Yeah, it's probably not just one. You know, I, the book has you know a bunch of chapters where each of them you know, addresses a particular curveball that I've had and what it did to me. And that's sort of, it's, so I'm not telling other people what they should think or what their curveball should be, but these are just mine. They're probably fairly common. You might be able to relate, but you know, this is, this is what it's about. So I think it was a series of things, but it had to do with all sorts of things, family. It had to do with uh, my education in biblical studies which opened up the Bible for me in ways that were very exciting, but also very much not a part of the inherited faith that I had. Uh, uh, science is a big thing for me. It always has been. And how, how we think scientifically and yet have this faith that's very ancient, 
that doesn't speak scientific language and how do we bring those things together of course that's a common ubiquitous challenge that christians have felt for a very very long time so um yeah stuff like that really you know that's that's what the book is about those are the stories that i put in there you continued uh this this baseball metaphor you wrote um when we uh, get thrown a curveball it doesn't have to mean game over but it does mean we have to be willing to make adjustments to our swing in order to make contact with the ball mm-hmm. what do you mean by this and, and what does that look like practically yeah i mean what it looks like practically i think differs from people to people but what i'm saying is that you know if using the curveball metaphor right if you're sort of moving along in the life of faith and everything's fine, but then something happens and it can be, you know, watching a documentary on the history channel about where the Bible came from or something, you know, and, and seeing things, you know, being listened to a compelling narrative of why, you know, the Bible is, it doesn't, it didn't arise this way, but it arose more this way. Um, That can be a very challenging experience uh for people and you know i i think that uh we need to listen to those moments i think you know and um that's you know that's a lot of what i'm talking about there that kind of an issue we are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors a model ministry are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe if so then a model ministry is for you We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You're a biblical scholar. I'm not stating anything you don't already know but the scriptures themselves um, show how people over a long period of time evolved in their understanding of God, how God works in the world and how God desires for us as, you know, what God desires for us as human beings. But that is a a very uncomfortable thought for a lot of people. Um, Why do you think that is? Yeah. um, It's interesting because, you know, the more I've read the Bible and read other people who have read the Bible, to me, nothing could be more obvious than the Bible has its own internal sort of evolution or development. Evolution is not the best word because it implies like progress or something. But 
it's more you see people reflecting on earlier traditions and then saying no it's this way not that way so there's this internal i'm going to say debate <clears throat> even within the bible with people with from different experiences and later times different contexts conceiving of god differently than other biblical writers in their context and their time and to me that's a very very liberating thought <clears throat> you know not because oh good i can make the bible say what i want it to say that's that's nonsense it's more recognizing the journey of faith that many people feel which is changing our views of god that's baked into the biblical story itself and i i think that's wonderful and why people would resist that is very understandable to me it's 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 almost logical you know if if you're raised in if your inherited faith says that the bible is god's absolute standard to tell us how to live and what to believe and what doctrines to hold to then you know it's it's um it, it it's very easy <laughs> to resist this notion obviously that oh no theology is meant to change your view of god is meant to expand and to change right so uh i think that's why it's it's more the expectations that people have that they bring into this whole issue of faith and whether faith should be stable or whether it should itself evolve and change and what i'm saying is that the model that we have in the bible and throughout christian history is that well no just the expression of the faith changes depending on context and i think we're conditioned to be repulsed by that because of uh, here's a sweeping statement that's not going to help anybody but i think a lot of this has to do with the rise of american fundamentalism and evangelicalism which was reacting to perceived attacks on the bible and so you sort of circle the wagons and you say the bible no no it's it's flawless it has no historical problems there are no tensions or contradictions this is a smooth book it's god talking to us it has to be perfect and then you start reading it and you realize it's a lot more complicated than that there's a reason why people still study this stuff full time and it's not because it's an easy book it's because it's not complicated so I, I think a lot of it is about reorienting expectations, which is what happens with people when they have these curveball experiences. And for a lot of them, it is reorienting themselves around what the Bible is and how it works. And um, I, I, I find that, and one of the themes in the book is I, I just find that to be absolutely necessary for the life of faith and also fully inevitable. You can't avoid it. It's, sooner or later, you're going to have, to use the word, a faith crisis. Or sooner or later, you're going to have some deconstructive moment. So I think that's where we are. Yeah. Uh, we recently had uh, our, our friend of, of the podcast, Zach Hunt, on uh, his sure. new book, God Breathed. And we were discussing this idea that, well, not the idea, we were discussing the, the fact that iner the idea of inerrancy is is really a relatively new term and it's it's reactionary to um the gray of faith and that there you know maybe mm. go back to one of your earlier books that uh we love and we crave certainty in our yeah, faith yeah. and so i think i think to a certain extent a lot of people revert back to an inherited faith 
when things seem soggy or seem uncertain. Um, it's just a natural impulse of human psychology that we want to we want to know because uh, what's unknown is uncomfortable. Um, but how many times do we see within scripture God inviting people into the unknown and something remarkable uh, happens? I I was asked uh, I'm coming up on a lectionary text in June. Uh, the Genesis 12, you know, Abraham being invited out of his certainty into this uncertain place. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and and yet somehow we forget that when it comes to our faith, we, we, we crave this inherited peace, this certain peace, um, Mm -hmm. and, and maybe the, the uncomfortable nature of, of, of the alternative, you know, um, you, you wrote, uh, the big lesson I learned from wrestling with my own curveballs is how deeply my faith in God has been cemented in fear, which is to say how I view God as much as antagonistic towards me. And so any thought on my part of listening to my experience and interrogating my inherited faith to inspect its uh, boundaries, let alone climb over its walls, was seen as a crisis that had to be averted or at least resolved immediately. I have to say this for, for our listeners who who can't see my face right now, but <laughs> I say this uh, tongue in cheek, but Pete isn't this the God uh, of the Bible, wrathful, vengeful, and judgmental, wanting to strike down humanity um, if it were not for the sacrifice of Jesus? How much of this framing of God permeates in the prevailing Christianity of America? Well, I think it's very common, and I think one thing for the reason you just stated, because you do find those, you know, uh, there are various portrayals of God in the Christian Bible, so Hebrew Bible and New Testament, and and there's diversity in how God is understood. But one of those ways is, you know, sort of a hair trigger temper at times. You know, I mean, I, I, I talk to my students at Eastern University and we talk about the flood narrative and we say, listen, it's chapter six of the Bible for heaven's sake. And God's already had it. And he says, okay, everybody dies by drowning. That'll solve it. <laughs> and it didn't. Um, and it's 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 part of the the narrative of the of the Hebrew Bible certainly and also of the New Testament. People don't always appreciate that. There's there's a little bit of vengeful stuff going on there as well. Um, but that those portrayals are part of the biblical picture of God. They're not the only thing, but they're part of it. And I don't know. I just I feel that. It's common among Christians to sort of accent that portrayal of God because I think it's easy to grasp and understand. It's not very abstract. Do what you're supposed to do and you'll be blessed. Disobey and you'll be punished. And the worst punishment is hell. And that kind of a God is easy to understand. A God whose mercy is boundless and loves all and treats all humans you know, with love and um, and compassion and wants the best for them, that's that's not neat. That's a little bit abstract, and that's that's not black and white. And I think that's really what I'm going for, the, the, the wanting to be black and white, which is what a fearful mind craves. It craves a kind of certainty. It craves a kind of, you know, clear boundaries. And the Bible encourages that in places. It encourages that well, what people have called a dualistic way of thinking, 
black and white thinking about God. And I think one reason why I, I, I love the diversity of portrayals of God in the Bible is because we're seeing there in the Bible itself, biblical characters actually struggling with those notions of God and and giving a different angle, a different slant. And there, you know, there are a lot of examples um, to that in, in the Bible. And that's why I find it so refreshing. And the irony is that the more biblical you are, I think the more you realize you can't just lift verses out and make them be the whole thing and then ignore everything else. Because the Bible forces you into some sort of, I guess what you can call an internal dialogue about what God is like. And we see the biblical corpus reflecting, I think, what people reflect in their own lives of faith as they go through life. And, you know, they're 60 and they don't believe in God the same way they did when they were 20. And thank heavens for that. That's just the way it is. And I've, I find that wonderful and comforting, but I also understand why some people don't. It's because of where they are and it's because of I think what they were taught to think about the nature of faith, that it's meant to keep you completely stable and never move, rather than, no, it's, it's, you're supposed to move because we're dealing with God here, and who, who of us can wrap our arms around God by the time we're 20? Nobody. You know, for, for many Americans, they were raised um, in the church. Our conceptualization of God and what it means to be Christian is being... Um, radically challenged right now. And, and there's a few things to unpack here. First, when, when the curveball coming at you um, from the radical toxicity within your own faith, such as white Christian nationalism, political mm -hmm. idolatry, homophobia, and transphobia, it can feel like the only option you have is to leave faith altogether because sure. this is what you inherited, what your understanding of Christianity to be you know, can we settle in there for just a second, kind of yeah. where people are with with those kind of uh, toxic aspects of faith? And right. is there an alternative to just, you know, leaving? Well, I think one of the, and again, let me make a blanket statement here, which could be nuanced and should be nuanced. But I think one of the very problematic and I think damaging things about, and let me just stick with American fundamentalism, and to a large extent also evangelicalism, is saying that the inherited faith, what we're delivering to you, is the faith. It's not an iteration of the faith. It is the faith. And so the question becomes, who has the best version always? And it's always the tribe that you're a part of. Um, <clears throat> you know, I used to belong to a... Uh, a denomination, let's say, and I just I want to don't go into great detail here, but where their attitude certainly was, it was explicitly they have the truth. Other Christians are well-meaning, but they don't have it. Our job is to wait for them to come around and then deliver it to them. So there's no self-reflection, and this is a big problem, I think, when you equate your iteration of the Christian faith with the absolute whole thing. It's, it simply ignores how culturally informed our version of Christianity is. We believe the way we believe because of all sorts of cultural factors. There's no like neutral um, view of Christianity that can ignore 
our skin color, our gender, our sexuality, our economic status, our, the part of the world where we grew up, to the extent to which we were educated or not, to the extent to which we're surviving for life every day, <laughs> and, and others who buy yachts. You know, it's it, our, our, our social context and our personalities very much affect our faith. And that's true of our inherited faith as well. No one gets handed a neutral version of Christianity. We all get handed something that has cultural trappings to it. And like we said before, that's, that's inevitable. That's normal. That's not wrong. What's wrong is when you say, and this is the faith that others have to conform to. That's how religious wars start. I'd like to avoid religious wars if we can. I'm glad we've broke news here that um, <laughs> you're willing to do that. Cause, yeah, because people think I'm trying to start them, but I'm not. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the whole tone of this conversation, I've been wanting to ask that question the whole time, but you clarified. Um, <laughs> Smart Alex. Um, take, taking up uh, kind of right where we left off that last question, um, you wrote, white privilege is not an overt act of racism, but simply an observation that people of white skin are historically and culturally dominant and therefore seen as standard or norm to, to, in many regards, you know, so much of our framework of understanding of, of faith is built around whiteness. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you seem to be exploring something different there. I, w I wonder if you'll take us a little sure. deeper there. Well, yeah, I, I have been, given the gift of self-awareness and consciousness over the decades about how my own social location, as they call it, affects how I think about everything, including God. And I never had to think about it because I'm part of the dominant culture. And so it's just normal for me. But it's coming into contact with people who don't look like me and don't come from where I come from that you know, has slowly brought me to a point where you know I can see white privilege, which is obvious to me. I don't really know how this can be debated, uh, mainly because some people equate white privilege with being overtly racist, and that's I don't think that's the case. White privilege is just sort of a fact, <laughs> you know. Just look at our country, look at our history, you know. So, so I've been thinking about that, you know, and how. You know, I had an early experience when I was a seminary professor where I was lecturing on something, I think it was the Abraham story. And afterwards, students came to me up to the uh, to the front uh, from uh, uh, African nations and also from South Korea, maybe four or five students. And they wanted to ask me about how what we just talked about helps us think about ancestor worship. And, you know, my internal response was, well, that's a dumb question because the Bible doesn't say anything about ancestor worship and certainly not what we're doing in class today. So can't we just stick to what the story is and the point of it and why bring your own dumb context into this discussion? I didn't say that. I wasn't really thinking of it in a hostile way, but I just thought it was a rather naive question because it's not what the text is about. But I think over time, I came to realize that, well, these are the questions that are important to them. And how do we bridge, you know, the Bible with the questions that they're fielding that the biblical writers weren't? And the real big point for me was, and I was beginning to see it even back then, was that my own perspective is every bit as much encultured as theirs is. 
but as being part of the dominant culture, I don't see it that way. I just see it normal. You know, we have a saying at the Bible for normal people that all theology has an adjective. It's, you know, your feminist theology, womanist theology, gay theology, liberation theology, et cetera, et cetera. But then you have normal theology, just, just what it normally is. But no, that's, you could say that's, that is white Western male theology. That is an affluent theology, not really connected with the marginalized forever. And the, the, for example, or those who are outside of the, the, the dominant culture. So we all bring to this a perspective and, uh, you know, the, a, a racial dimension has been an important part for me of, of seeing the bigger picture of how the Bible is, will inevitably be drawn into cultural orbits. I don't think it's possible to avoid that. And what we call just basic, good, straight down the middle Christian theology is itself the product of the tradition being drawn into certain cultural orbits. And once you see that, and I, I'm taking that as a fact, which I'm willing to debate with people, but once you see that, you, you can't help but be a little bit circumspect in your own theology. And I think, again, that's a, to me, that's a sign of spiritual maturity not wavering or becoming an unbeliever or something like that. I think as, as we frame kind of sending, sending you off here and thinking through um, this concept of curveball, I think in many regards, um, I have discovered in the last decade that fundamentalism exists um, on the right and the left. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think in, in many regards, we can come to a place in which we have deconstructed, let's just say we were raised American evangelical. We've deconstructed that and come into this new sense of faith that we can almost give in to the temptation of um, we've arrived mm -hmm. and um, there is no shift or change or uh, concept of curveballs that can come our way. So how do we how do we continue to prepare ourselves for whatever curveballs come next when it comes to life and faith and to accept them, you know, and, and to, as an inevitable part of faith. But yeah, I think again, one of the big problems that I see and I've participated in too, I mean, I'm, I'm not looking so much simply from the outside, but in thinking that, your own iteration of the Christian faith, whether it's far left or far right, is the pinnacle that we're all reaching for. And, you know, Tom Wright, years ago, I forgot where he said this, um, but he refers to that kind of thinking as a false eschatology. Eschatology is, you know, the end where all things come together and are summated. Um, it's, it's a rarity, for me at least, to see a church or a denomination say, listen, we don't have the whole truth and we know that. We're doing the best we can with the gifts that we have and with our understanding, with our limitations as humans to try to understand what God is like. And we want to move forward in faith and with joy and with grace and with love and all that. That'd be fantastic. And some churches say that, but many others are, well, we have the truth. And that's all there is to it. And you just have to conform. And we mentioned that before. And uh, 
to me, that is one of the big lies to people here. And it can really get in the way of true, well, it does get in the way of what I think is true spiritual growth, which always involves dying to yourself. And I, I'm convinced that doesn't just mean, you know, I'm not going to be selfish anymore. Or I'm going to stop drinking beer or something like that. I think it can mean also dying to your theology. It can mean dying to your inherited faith, if need be, because I, I simply, I've got this internal sense of cognitive dissonance. So it's a, that makes you say, I've, this isn't it. I value this community. I value what I've learned, but there are things here that make no sense to me and don't help me make sense of the world that I live in. And I have to think about it. I have to move on from this. That is a very, very, very healthy place to be. It's inevitable. And I would argue, again, it's thoroughly biblical. Our guest is Pete Enns. The book is Curveball. You can stay connected with Pete by visiting PeteEnns.com. Pete, it's always a joy to, to speak with you. Thank you for so generously and pastorally helping us normalize the many shifts and changes that are a natural part of being human and people of faith. Sure, Andy. It's always good to be with you. Hey, you're not going to want to fast forward because you want to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023. For more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.